This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Scripture has a great deal to say about wisdom. The words wisdom or wise occur about 400 times in the Bible. Yet both inside and outside the visible church, ours is not an age that is characterized by that same interest in or search for wisdom. Christians should be interested in wisdom if only because Scripture speaks about it and exhorts us to it and instructs us in it so frequently. But wisdom as an abstract idea can seem elusive and hard to grasp. Scripture says that wisdom requires us to respond to a fool according to his foolishness, and sometimes wisdom requires us not to respond to a fool according to his foolishness. If only there is a way to make it concrete, to make it clear, to make it obvious what wisdom is. There is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is the first step in getting what Scripture calls a heart of wisdom, but it is even more precise, more concrete than that. Wisdom is also a person. Paul calls our Lord Jesus the power and wisdom of God. When he spoke that way, he was not saying anything that Scripture had not already said in other places long before. Here to help us think through how to relate wisdom to our Lord Jesus Christ is Dr. Steve Baugh, professor of New Testament and in his 31st year of teaching at Westminster Seminary, California. He's author of a number of articles, two Greek grammars, and he has a commentary on Ephesians forthcoming, to which we'll devote an episode later. Steve's books and other faculty titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Steve, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you, Scott. So when we think of wisdom, we can think of it in the abstract, but there are other ways in Scripture to think and talk about wisdom. And off-air, you and I were discussing the very difficult text of Proverbs 8, about which there has been some disagreement. Uh, Historically, uh, the fathers, Justin Martyr and Athanasius, just to name two, interpreted Proverbs 8.22 to refer to Christ. But I understand that that interpretation isn't universally received. But it does testify to a Christian impulse to see wisdom as something more than an abstract or a skill, even though it is arguably both of those. And then, of course, Calvin does that as well in Institutes 2, 14, 8, where he interprets uh, Proverbs 8, 22, relative to the eternal begetting of the Son. So how do we, in general, or how do you, in general, think about the relationship between Christ and and wisdom in Scripture? Well, I don't think about it in abstract. It's easier for me to go to places like 1 Corinthians 1 and interpret how Paul calls Christ our wisdom. Let me back up and say that I have worked through Proverbs 1 through 9, which is a complete unit. I treat it as a uh, catechism of the Old Testament church. So it's a address to the young member of the covenant community and an exhortation that they would fear the Lord. That's the center of, uh, it opens with the fear of the Lord as a beginning and foundation of wisdom and ends with that as well. And the cry of Lady Wisdom is that the fear of the Lord is the foundation of all wisdom. But my definition derived from that is kind of abstract. 
something you said that I think was helpful is if you want to think about biblical wisdom in general, you think of it as the skill of godly living. So it's a skill, you develop it, you work on it, you thoughtfully pursue it. It's godly, it's founded in the fear of the Lord, it's always centered on the Lord, and it's about life. So wisdom has to do with life. But when we talk about godly, that's the key for thinking about Christ. We have no godliness without Christ. He is all of our righteousness. He is all of our life. He is all of our hope. He embodies for us the center of all of our access to God. He is our prophet, priest, and our king. So that Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning with verse 18, talks about this uh, ironic truth. The cross is folly to those who are perishing, but for us it's the power of God. And then he goes on to say it's really the wisdom of God. God uses this folly to really overthrow the wisdom of the world, and he uses what is apparently utmost weakness, this man hanging on a cross and the utmost shame and apparent weakness. God uses that apparent weakness to display his power by then raising him from the dead and raising us from the dead in him. So you really think of Christ as the center of all of our reality. That's what Paul means by Christ is our wisdom. We have no interpretation of reality that is apart from Christ. He's the center of all human existence, as it were. And he makes everything sensible so that when we look at the world and we look at our lives, they only make sense in light of the center, who is Christ himself. And there you see that... um Paul quotes from Isaiah, right? I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So there's something very profound happening here in 1 Corinthians, because you you were mentioning something about thwarting expectations. So the Greeks thought what about wisdom? If you said Sophia to a first century Hellenized person, a So whether someone's a Greek or a Jew who's been Hellenized, what would they think? Well, let's read on. You just read 1 Corinthians 1.19. You read on, verse 22, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, so the Greeks. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So for the Greeks, wisdom was a number of things. It was perception into the unification of reality and what makes sense of all reality. So they were seeking to penetrate into what human existence, how it makes sense. And some of them were saying that everything is many? Everything is various things. So you could say everything is X. So the pre-Socratic philosophers, so those philosophers before Socrates, would say things like everything is flux. So Heraclitus, everything is movement. Everything is... It's change. Changing. So there's nothing stable. He was really the first relativist. Everything is always in flux, and you can't really say anything is stable. Or fixed. Fixed, which is itself self-contradictory, because he said something fixed, and therefore said it's in flux. It's fixed that everything's changing. Yeah, yeah. So it's (laughs) self-contradictory. It didn't seem to bother him. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Another one, I forget his name. One of the names that sticks in my mind is Anaximander. All is deity. So all is theosis. Everything is kind of a divine. So he's a kind of pantheist. So they were trying to unify everything to kind of a core center that they could get a handle on it. 
and therefore know how they should live. So the second part of wisdom for the Greeks was, how should I live? And the two competing philosophies in Paul's day, which would be present in Corinth, you see in Acts 17 when Paul is at Mars Hill, and those were the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Stoics said that everything is pervaded by the logos, the rationality. Universal rational principle. Yeah, that's right. And so they just put their faith in this kind of abstract universal reason. And then as we exercise reason, we're put into touch with ultimate reality. And then you live accordingly. Epicureans, they had various you know, emphases, but some of them essentially said, well, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And This life is all there is. This they life is all there is. They tended to be what's called atomists. They believed a very secular philosophy that everything is just a physical bunch of atoms lined up. and Which is not too far from what people think today, right? Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, we're just animals. We have these instincts, and we should just derive what pleasure we can today because tomorrow we die and there's nothing afterwards. It's simply atoms dispersing. That's all we are. So in light of that, Christianity has this answer, which appears to be folly. It appears to be really powerless. It appears to be something that God provided. Well, he provided his own incarnate son. And did he appear in this uh, 300-foot flaming appearance that he would impress everybody and bring all together, all the people of the world together under his beauty and strength? Well, no, he appeared as a ordinary Jewish guy in a pitifully small part of the world. And he died on a cross which was appropriate to a slave and a uh, worse sort of criminal, the most powerless and ineffective and uh, shameful type of death you could have, and a guy who didn't appear with any sort of regal majesty, except when he talked, of course. <laughs> I think he speaks with great majesty. But his appearance was hidden, and God was pleased to destroy the wisdom of the wise in this way. Really, you know, you see a foretaste of this in Gideon. So Gideon could have defeated the Lord's enemies with a great host, and he kept trimming down his army down to just a handful of men <laughs> so that God would show he is going to accomplish it himself. He is going to bring his people into eternal glory himself, not through human agency other than the human Jesus Christ. And not through what we think of as powerful right. or wise right. or sophisticated or influential. So among the Greeks, whether they were looking for the one or the many, they were saying, unless we can have a comprehensive understanding with our intellect, then we won't believe it. And so they were rationalists. They said that the mind of man is the measure of all things, which, of course, we associate with modernity and the Enlightenment, but of course it's not new at all, it's, it's very ancient. And to the rationalists, Paul says, well, I've got this for you, right? A crucified rabbi who was raised on the third day. Deal with that. So wisdom isn't an abstract principle that you access with your mind apart from Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate, which was truly shocking to people who hadn't contemplated the possibility of truth being embodied, first of all, in a human being who is true God and true man, and then who was crucified, which would have been scandalous to no end to them. Yeah, I think that's very good. And let me 
key off of that and say something in a general fashion to help understand. Today, we find it difficult in our climate to defend the deity of Christ. People don't believe in the deity of Christ. They don't think that God made an appearance in him. And so we show from scriptures that Christ was indeed God incarnate. See, in Paul's day, that God would make an appearance among human beings was not a problem. <laughs> the contemporaries of Paul had no problem with that. Remember, he went to a certain place in Asia Minor, and they were willing to sacrifice to him and one of his colleagues as uh, Zeus and Hermes. So they were willing to sacrifice because the gods were among us. And they were polytheists. They were polytheists. They believed the gods made appearances. They actually had festivals among the Greeks where the gods would make appearances. I think it's sometimes somebody dressed up, but you know, they had these, they called them epiphanies of the, of the gods. And it's part of Homer, it's part of their heritage. You never know when the gods might show up. But to them, the real stumbling block was not only did God show up, but he showed up as a true human being. And so the New Testament authors in their world have to defend the true humanity of Christ. That was the difficulty in their culture, was that he was truly human. So often they stress his humanity. And I think that's what makes wisdom in Christianity, this personalized wisdom in Christ, so attractive, is you have a divine wisdom, but one that is embodied in a real human being, someone that you can approach. If you want to see what it means to be wise, you can look to him, because you have the pure embodiment of wisdom, and it's a divine wisdom. It's a divine personage, and it's somebody who's approachable. Uh, Steve, would it be fair to say that the Greeks were, in their own way, sort of adoptionists, that the gods sort of become God, and then maybe they might lose their divine status? So you were saying that it was common for them to think about the gods making an appearance, but Paul is saying something rather, as you were saying, something rather different from that. The gods aren't simply making an appearance in Christ. He is God. As John says, in the beginning, he was. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and nothing came into being except that which came into being through the Word. And Paul understands that. Paul's saying the same thing, that he's not simply making an appearance. He's not simply a man of whom God approved and adopted into the Trinity. He's the eternal and eternally begotten Son of God who became incarnate, not simply out of the sky, as it were, but in the womb of the Virgin, which is even more, in a sense, both extraordinary and, to the Greeks perhaps, offensive. Yes, it was offensive because they thought bodily existence was evil by definition. Because they distinguished between spirit and matter, right. they tended to, and that which is spiritual, that which is ethereal, is higher right. and better, and that which is material and physical is lower and more corrupted. Well, and they equated the material with death and mortality and the immortals, you know, the gods don't die, therefore they can't have bodies. People could become gods, so you have heroes and hero cults, so you have emperor cults and people who become eternal spirits. But and so that's why adoptionism is really just paganism oh, yeah. addressed up. Oh, sure. It's just adapting Christianity to their own thinking. But when you think about it, it's dealing with a different God than the God of the Scripture. So you have to really make a lot of changes to come up with that. 
But it is something where if you want a form of Christianity where you are the measure of all knowledge and what you can rationally perceive and articulate is ultimate truth, not just a true representation of truth, but itself is ultimate truth, then you're not accepting the wisdom of God. You are asserting that you are God and uh, no longer dealing with biblical Christianity. And the Jews were equally offended, but in a slightly different way, I take it. When Paul says, foolishness to Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews, what is particularly offensive to Jews, who obviously he's thinking of those who have not yet put their trust in Christ, what is it that makes him a stumbling block? Well, if you want to kind of articulate it in a simple way, adoptionism was really more a Jewish problem. They believed that Jesus was only a human being, he was a prophet, and God adopted him because they didn't hold to God himself could become man because that was denial in their mind of the unity of God being one. So they held to adoptionism. Whereas the Greeks believed that Christ only appeared to be man, that he was truly only God and only had appearance as a human being. So there was, you know, those are the two sides of the options for Christology. And the Greeks tend to accept that he was God, but they really couldn't accept his humanity. So the stumbling block for the Jews was you have a man appearing whom they were willing to accept as a teacher or a prophet, but he demanded the kind of allegiance from his hearers that one could only give to God. And so they had a real problem with that. It's critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, We need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting in what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we're justified and all the other benefits and fruits of Christ's work flow out of that. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, his gospel, and his church. And they had trouble with the suffering servant. They had trouble with uh, the obviously the incarnation and they had trouble with the fact that you know all through his ministry he said look I and the father are one and that's what really infuriated the authorities and said well this guy's a blasphemer and he needs to die so Paul says where is the one who is wise where is the scribe where is the debater of this age has not God made foolish the wisdom of of the world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Paul, wisdom, true wisdom, ultimate wisdom, wisdom as it is in Christ or as Christ is wisdom, is saving wisdom. And so this takes the whole matter of wisdom to another level, doesn't it? Right. I like how he puts it in verse 30. So 1 Corinthians 1.30. He is a source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So you have Christ being the center of really all of our reality. He's the one who explains everything, and in him we have all righteousness and sanctification. We have everything we need for life and godliness in Christ. 
So we come to God through our one mediator, and by faith, trusting ourselves to him, we have all the benefits of eternal life, which the Greeks were seeking through wisdom and the Jews through law-keeping, essentially, and by hoping that God would do a work that was according to their own terms. They were willing to accept a prophet, a new political leader to kick the Romans out of Palestine, but not one who actually appeared. They wanted civil, religious power. And so when Jesus enters the city riding on a donkey, this is exciting yeah. because they had a precursor for this. David had done that. Right. And so they thought, well, this is it. Yeah. And of course, Jesus knew what they were expecting yeah. and knew that he was about to disappoint them mightily, right. warned his disciples as to what was going to take place. And even as we read the Gospel of John, basically engineered this whole thing and comes into the city. And from a human point of view, things go very, very badly. And the disciples are very dispirited. He's arrested. He, it's just horrible. He's mocked. He's put through a trial. He's offered up to the crowd, and the crowd cries out for Barabbas instead of Jesus. And he's made to carry a cross at least partway up Golgotha, finally crucified, uh, humiliated, mocked on the cross until he's dead. And it seems like to the disciples and to everybody looking at that point that all is lost. It's gone. All their hopes are dashed. And there's nothing left. And that was intentional. Folly. It looks like folly. Which is what Paul says, right, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians one twenty five. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God right. is stronger than men. He intentionally made it look like folly and weakness, so that you would know it's a divine work. That all of our righteousness, mm-hmm. our sanctification, our power, our wisdom— is found in this one, Jesus Christ. And our deliverance from the wrath of God. Yeah. It happened right there in front of our eyes, and we didn't see it. Oh, Jesus was riding in triumph Mm. on that donkey. It just was, they were thinking too small. Exactly. He was taking over the kingdoms of the world. He was entering into the kingdom of God as its king, and he was entering into the power at the right hand of the majesty on high, where he will rule, where he does rule, and continue to rule until the climax of this age and into the world to come. When he came into the city and when they saw him on the cross, they never, ever expected that they would see him ascend right in front of their eyes. Just as they had seen him crucified with their eyes, they saw him with their eyes ascend and say, in effect, I'll be back. This is why John, ironically, in John's gospel, talks about the ascent of Christ on the cross, Mm. that this is his triumph. This is where he enters into glory. When I be lifted up, I draw all men to myself. That's right, because it's where he begins his great work of ascent. But he would only have followers entering into his realm, which is the world to come, the kingdom of God, when they can come in through him, the way, the truth, and the life, the doorway into the sheep pen by grace through his work. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Luther and Calvin used the categories, the theology of glory versus the theology of the cross. And this is the quintessential example of the theology of glory. That is the desire for triumph and power and what makes sense to us versus the theology of the cross. That is power and strength and glory in the very antithesis of what we expect. Right. We have a theology of glory, but it's by way of the cross. (laughs) Exactly. There is glory, but not where we think and not how we think. Right. Naturally. Right. There's one other passage that we want to look at, and that is in Colossians 2, 1 through 6, where the apostle again comes back to this idea of wisdom and relates it very closely to Christ. And he says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all 
who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for, though I am absent in body, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So guilt, grace, and gratitude but rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. So what makes all this available to us is faith in him, not our own work. You're going to laugh because it seems like uh, New Testament professors try to make the uh, scripture more complicated than they appear on the surface. But the background of Colossae is kind of complicated. It's a very interesting book, uh, and the background of it, I think, is kind of complex because it's a mixture of lots of different strains of pagan background. Some of it's uh, what we would call a magic power kind of background, and others of it is kind of what we call Gnosticism. and Not full-blown Gnosticism, but some of the ideas that in the middle of the second century would be assembled into a system, sort of a questing for secret knowledge, esoteric knowledge. And some of that was already there, just not connected to Christianity. Some of that stuff was embodied in pagans. They had mystery religions, which had a kind of Gnostic flavor that went way back. But when it came into contact with Christianity, then we call it Gnosticism proper. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And we want to say that the evidence says that the Gnostics in the second century were a heresy from Christianity. Yeah, it's a uh, variation on Christianity. But here's the thing that he's dealing with. Uh, Some of it we can all relate to. Uh, Everybody wants to be in on the secret. You go to church and, you know, you hear the preaching and there's always this temptation you know, that I have the secret access to some special knowledge that only I have, and so I'm special. I'm unique over against the ordinary. You find this among Christians in various forms throughout history. You know, some people are part of an inner circle, and they get this special understanding. Paul deals with that in Colossians. He deals with it in Ephesians and elsewhere. He says, if you want something special, I'm going to give it to you. It's the gospel. This has been a mystery that's now unveiled, and you're a part of it now. Every single one of you, from old to young, male and female, slave and free, we all have full access to the revelation of God, and it's given to us in Christ Jesus. So there are not two kinds of Christians, those that have the secret knowledge and those that don't. Right. So he breaks that down. And secondly, he says the secret is something that was revealed in the past right. through types and shadows and now has been made manifest in Christ. But it's not a Gnostic secret up in the heavens, if you will, whereby, according to the later in the second century, the Gnostics will say that you climb these ions like steps on a ladder up to this sort of secret knowledge whereby you're delivered from physical created humanity. And he's not offering that. He's saying, no, quite to the contrary. The wisdom that we need, the salvation that we need, the truth that we need is actually embodied in Jesus, who is, again, as we were saying earlier, truly human or a true man. 
Exactly. Have the people listening reread Colossians 2, 2 and 3. What knits us together is love. This appeal to secret knowledge that I have over against my fellow Christian, that's not love. Paul says true love is how we together as a community grow in the riches of knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, it's all accessible to us. There's nothing hidden from the general Christian. We all have access to true and genuine knowledge and understanding and wisdom in him. And there's nothing else. You don't need anything else. But what you do need is love. And this goes to 1 Corinthians 8. You know, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Knowledge gives you the appearance that you're part of the secret select few, but what we really need together is love. And then we can grow together in true knowledge of Christ and true knowledge of God and of ourselves and walk in holiness and love together. Which is why he says in Colossians 2, 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Right. So wisdom isn't just knowledge, although it entails that. Wisdom is putting one's trust in Christ, God's provision for sinners. And living accordingly, abounding living in accordingly. thanksgiving. So a skill of godly living. So you end up with that again, where what does godly living look like? Well, it starts with love and ends up with thanksgiving and is always conditioned by faith. We're rooted and established in faith, built upon Christ Jesus. So he is our wisdom. So we come back to that. And this is how we keep from being taken captive by philosophy. Now, he's not saying don't study philosophy. He's not saying don't learn. After all, if you hadn't studied something of ancient philosophy, you couldn't have helped us understand what the background for 1 Corinthians and Colossians 2 is. So you need to know that. So there's a difference between studying it and being taken captive by it. Well, and he doesn't just say philosophy, but the next phrase explains it empty deceit. So this is a philosophy which is designed to captivate people. This is a particular kind of devious philosophy. These are people who are presenting ideas that connect with things that we experience, but they're doing it out of deceitful motive to try to undermine our faith in Christ. And it's an alternate explanation that leads away from Christ, not toward Christ. And you see that at least hinted when he says, human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Now, that expression, elemental spirits, is difficult, but arguably what they're facing is a kind of works religion of some kind over against uh, grace, it seems. Right, because it leads then to denial of bodily appetites, you know, denial of marriage, looking at what you eat as the true access to knowledge. Asceticism of some kind, some sort of false asceticism, which would match up with the general pattern among some of the Greeks of saying that which is spiritual, that which is ethereal is good, and that which is material is evil. So the human body is evil and so forth. So denial of the body would be a way, according to that way of thinking, of wisdom. But Paul says in verse 9, for in him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. So that's contrary to the expectations of those around him. That term dwells bodily is Paul's being in your face. 
Yeah. <laughs> he's being provocative here, and he's, oh, yeah, he's presenting sure. them with a, a stark contrast. Well, and look at verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is what I was saying before. He's affirming the genuine incarnate humanity of Christ, bodily existence. And this was a real problem with the Greeks. Everything that makes up God was here in him bodily. This is genuine God-man. And that shows that bodily existence is not of itself necessarily evil, which is what the Greeks thought. And salvation is found in God the Son who took on true humanity. Rather than by us performing certain works, you know, if if I avoid eating beans or if I avoid (laughs) eating uh, meat, this was the Pythagoreans, then I will attain to a disembodied kind of reality that I'm seeking. This is what they were hoping for. And Christians today are tempted, just as the Colossians were, to look away from Christ and to look to other things. It won't get you anywhere except apart from Christ and grace and eternal life. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.